Would you like to accelerate your career and reach your full potential in just minutes a day? Welcome to the LeadX Show with New York Times bestselling author and Inc. 500 entrepreneur, Kevin Cruz. Hey everyone, Kevin Cruz here. Welcome to the LeadX Leadership Show. Welcome back to the LeadX Leadership Show. We are once again gonna help you to get a little bit better. We're gonna help you to be viewed as a hypo, not a hippo, a hypo, a high potential, of course. In just a minute, you'll hear a great conversation about how to coach others and other topics from someone who created the leadership development program at Microsoft, and he personally worked with Bill Gates. First, I hope you'll remember, if you want to master the two R's of management, I call it the two R's, results and retention. You need to get those hard business results and you need to retain your great talented team members. Just check out the LeadX Academy at leadx.org. Our quote of the day is from the Dalai Lama, my go-to. Our prime purpose in this life is to help others. And if you can't help them, at least don't hurt them. I actually think about that quote quite a bit. It's like, you know what? Like, let try to help everyone. If you don't want to help anyone or you can't help anyone, just don't get in their way. Just don't hurt them. Now, our guest today brings a rich background to the challenge of coaching senior executives. After earning his PhD in differential psychology in 1979, University of Minnesota, he plunged into a career of teaching, research, and consulting. But then, 1993, he left tenure and joined the Microsoft Corporation as general manager, corporate HR. Uh, that was back when they were still fairly small and then just took off with explosive growth. From 93 to 2001, he was the architect of Microsoft's executive and leadership development efforts. During that time, he had the opportunity to coach many of the company's most senior leaders and fast rising stars. His leadership course, designed to resonate with the pace and pressure of Microsoft's culture, has been delivered to Microsoft leaders around the world. Currently, my guest is president of the Oceanside Institute. My guest is Dr. Douglas McKenna. Doug, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kevin. I'm glad to be here. Now, on the LeadX show, I've got this funny tradition where it doesn't matter who the guest is, I always start with the same first question. I've got so many young leaders in the audience. So the question is, you know, what leadership advice would you give to a first-time manager? You know, it's funny, uh, when I uh, thought, as I've thought about this question, um, I realized I have a soft spot in my heart for first-time managers, and for a variety of reasons, but primarily because I was a professor and consultant for 15 years in a business school uh, before I actually decided to become a manager. So I went from managing this unmanageable one person <laughs> to managing 300 people overnight. And um, the number of lessons that I was taught because of my deficiencies <laughs> at Microsoft is, is it's, it's too much to get into here. But there is a point behind it. And maybe this will be my first bit of advice. Um, you really must, as a new manager, uh, spend a significant portion of time investigating the context within which you're working. Uh, if you don't understand uh, what your group the group that you've been that you're going to lead uh, is expected to deliver uh, to the to the organization's mission to its strategy. 
um, and you don't know how business gets done, mm. how work actually gets done in that particular organization, um, I think if, there, there are so many failures that I see because people just don't take time to learn and investigate the context within which they're, um, they're working. That said, let's see, if I were to give you one bit for a new leader, here's what it would be. Don't smile till Christmas. What does that mean? <laughs> well, uh, elementary school teachers use this one. If you, if you, for example, you're welcoming a group of first graders uh, into your classroom for the first time, and it's all hugs mm. and love and fondness and affection and, and uh, nurturing, when the first time comes where you have to correct that child, you've put yourself in a position where they're not expecting that. They're not expecting you to be focused on, oh, you mean this is about reading or this is about arithmetic, you know, or this is about right. this is about what it is we're trying to produce. It's more about our feelings for each other. And I think a first first time leaders often confuse the absolute importance of building relationships with putting relationships first and results second. Yeah. You know, we're in these leadership jobs to contribute to the organization and its mission and its strategy. That's why we're all here. So let's keep that in mind and let's not get caught up in a bunch of feeling oriented, uh, teamy even right, stuff right. before we settle on the fact that this is our primary purpose, to produce these results for the organization. Yeah. So don't smile till Christmas means keep your feelings, keep your feelings and your affection for people in check. That comes, and it comes in a great rewarding way when you can accomplish something together. Right, right. Um, so that would that would be one. Would you like another? Would Please, you, yeah. <laughs> would you like to hear another? I, I'm all ears. Okay. I think it's absolutely critical for a new manager uh, beyond you know getting clear about the results that you have to deliver and and how those contribute to the organization's mission and strategy i always ask my first time leaders i want you to create a map of the of the people that you're going to have to work with to deliver these results now in general you know there there's a variety of categories that we could just Im immediately name but one one would be of course our boss so the upward direction of relationships, the peer relationships, which is what, man, really, when I moved into my big management job, it was peer relationships that turned out to be both most beneficial and most problematic. Mm. Um, and then you have the people that work for you. You have the groups that receive, uh, that deliver work to you. You have groups that receive it from you. But a map, Kevin, you know, with actual faces, people on it, because then you understand that organization, you, you, one thing we have to understand is that organizations get things done through people. I know you said this in, in one of your critiques of, um, of a variety of leadership definitions. They leave, if they leave out people, they leave out the essence of the organization. Right. So I always, say, I always say to my first-time leaders, you have to know which relationships are key, and you better get started in a very disciplined way one-on-one -on -one to work with those people and strengthen those relationships for two purposes. One is for the intelligence that you can gather from them. They have a different perspective than you do, whether it's up, down, sideways, inside out, or outside. They have something you can't see. They're, it's incredibly valuable to, them, to you in that way. Secondly, when you go to them and need something, 
you're not just coming out of the you know, flying in out of the blue. Yeah. This is this is you're you're building you're at, you've already built a relationship and uh, the mutual expectation that we're going to support each other. So building this map out and really seeing what is my people system, relationship system uh, challenge here and how am I going to in a disciplined way get to each of these people and build and maintain a working relationship. That would be another one. What I really liked about this last part is the way you emphasize, like, put some faces to it because there could be people listening to this and be like, well, I just look at my org chart and I can see my, my, my map, right? That's the org chart. And it's not because, well, first of all, most of us, we look at the org chart and we want to know who's above us and how big's our span of control. Like, you know, how powerful am I? What's my downline? And you're talking about that those peer relationships can be the most important to you in many ways. And then to not think about yes. titles and boxes and lines, but like these are faces, these are people. And when it comes down to it, you ain't getting nothing done unless you've got relationships built, you know, yeah. now and for when you need them in the future. That's so, that, that's so true. And, you know, I love the way you've picked out this faces thing. When I work with uh, large groups, Sometimes, and we have them map out a particular situation, you know, individuals map out a particular situation that they're struggling with. Um, they'll often come back and say, well, we're having trouble with the marketing group, or we're having trouble with finance. And I say, who? Yeah. Name them to yourself. Who is this person you're having problems with? Because we don't build relationships to groups. We build relationships to people. Love it. So that's why I, I'm pleased that you picked up on that face, that face idea. Now you got another one, right? Yeah, I got, oh, I got another one. All right. What's another one? This one is pretty simple. Make your boss successful. Make your peers successful. Make your direct reports successful. And to the extent that you can, take yourself out of the equation. Mm. The main hindrances I find, the main speed bump, the things that cause speed bumps and roadblocks for leaders are two things, self-protection and self-promotion. <laughs> okay. And, you know, I, I worked in an organization. I worked at Microsoft when, when we were very young. Um, I started, actually, my first contact with the company was when there was only 400 people there. Wow. And I was a consultant then for seven years. By the time I left, oh boy, uh, I, I joined after seven years and then spent almost another 10. We were at 96,000 people. Oh my gosh. Uh, so, so it was a time, it was a time in which we really, really had to build strength into every level of leadership in the company. Hmm. And that was the big, the great fear was that the, this thing that was going, this juggernaut was going to collapse under its own weight with a bunch of 26 year old managers who didn't know what they were doing. And so our job was to come in and try to help them uh, get both the strengths, the flexibility, the alignment with the organization and the endurance to, to get through this thing. Um, Self-protection and self-promotion really got in the way, got in the way of doing that. Um, and emotion ran really high in that mm. great startup. Yeah. And so a lot of times people would get nervous and they'd start to get defensive about their positions. And the minute they would pull back into that, their picture of the, of the relationship system, of the mission strategy, everything shrinks right, right. down like this. And the only way to expand is to step back, step back out of your own sort of self-reference. Right, right. You know, how do I see... 
how do I see this? How do I see what's going on without constantly referring back to, well, is this good for me? <laughs> right. Or do I really want to do, do I really want to do this? We're not there to do we're not in organizations to do the things we want to do. We're there to do the things that the organization needs. And I think self self-protection and self-promotion uh, just get in the way of that every time. Yeah. Great advice. Now, Doug, I'm going to come back in a minute to um, your your time at Microsoft. But, you know, I, I originally uh, discovered your work and reached out to you as I was starting to do more homework and think a little bit more rigorously about coaching, both um, uh, how do how do the best executive coaches do it? And related, how can effective managers, effective leaders bring a coaching style, you know, into their daily management? And there's a a kind of a classic definition of coaching from Sir John Whitmore. Many people are familiar with. He said, coaching is unlocking people's potential to maximize their own performance. It is helping them to learn rather than to teach them. So, how would you describe uh, yourself the difference between traditional training? I'm going to train people how to do things versus how to coach them. Mm-hmm. We are doing training right now because what we're talking about are ideas. We're talking about uh, trying to articulate what we know about leadership in a way that will be digestible and useful uh, to a general audience of those who have who are in this kind of a, of a challenge, a work challenge. Coaching is about now. Training is about when. Hmm. Doing press interviews was something I had to do a lot in my last job. And I needed to know some general principles about, uh, you know, about how to do that and how to do it well. Uh, but with a, with a media coach or a, a press coach, I would go to that person and say, here's the interview that's coming up. We're in the midst of this giant antitrust thing. What's the best approach here for me to take, both in terms of the, you know, what I'm going to say and how I'm going to answer questions, which is content, but also how do I want to represent my company? So coaching was about the situation, whereas teaching is directed at teaching a specific knowledge that may come up at some point and is likely to come up in the future. I I think it's incredibly, training is incredibly valuable. What I love about coaching, though, is it's customized to the situation and capabilities of the of the individual. So my coaching, my pro- approach to coaching gives primary respect to the circumstances or situations that a manager or a leader finds him or herself in. We start there. So my coaches, for example, it's a funny word, uh, <laughs> the people I coach are asked to come to me when we meet, let's say we meet every week or we're meeting every two weeks um, on some sort of regular pulse-like schedule. That's quite important as it turns out. I ask them to bring um, something I learned from Gary Latham hmm. way back in the beginning called critical incidents. I have people uh, write down before they come to coaching one or two situations that are keeping them up at night. And that's right where we start. We don't have some sort of abstract, um, you know, idealistic teaching that I'm trying to do or advice that I'm trying to give them. I want to know how, what problem are they facing? How are they handling it now? How's it working out? And my job as a coach, just as um, I ta- I'm taking jazz piano as a beginner right now, and I have a teacher, 
And my teacher is so great because he comes in, um, you know, each week I play and he, he isn't looking for, he, he'll say, well, that's, that's good. You've made progress there. And so he'll encourage me in that way. But his great value is in pinpointing those things that I'm doing that are limiting my performance at this point in time, mm. whether they're, you know, they're kinesthetic, mental, um, even emotional. What, you know, am I, am I afraid to play right now? And I, as a, as a leadership coach, my job is to listen Listen to the theory of the situation. I'm using the theory of the situation is the your way. Let's say you're. I'm working with you, Kevin. It's your way of thinking about the problem you're in. Mm. And what what I bring is the ability to step back. I'm not emotionally involved in it. Right. Right. As you are, so I can see a little bit more. And where can where can this insight that I might have on a pattern that you're missing? Where can that come in? And can I reveal that to you in a way that you say, yeah, I haven't been looking at it that way. Or there's another, maybe there's another person through whom I could approach this difficult peer. Right. So you, you step back, you know. Um, but to, to uh, I believe that coaching is primarily not about, not about your strengths, which is a very popular way to go. <laughs> coaching for expertise, coaching for um I believe for leadership expertise is primarily focused around performance limiters, those things that are preventing you from going to the next level. And I have to do that in a very tailored way with the individual in their situation. Now, another thought just occurred to me about the difference between training and um, and coaching, which is that if you have a good training program, you have a curriculum that you're teaching to. The curriculum that we coach to are the natural situations that are occurring in the course of a job. We know that most learning occurs on the job, but it doesn't happen automatically. We know from the research on expertise by great great scientists like Anders Ericsson, we, we, we know that um, that that you that you that, that situations are your curriculum. They're, they provide you with a real time opportunity to figure out what it is that you're doing not doing as well as you possibly could, and raising your level of performance. So it's very situational. The curriculum is what you're already dealing with. So that that's, I guess that's my thinking on the difference between coaching. Uh, oh, well, there is one more aspect of that. One thing I always do with my coachees. Let's say we're at, in an hour-long coaching session. We're at minute 45. What I'm thinking about is I've got to help this person see what's coming up in the next week where they can take whatever it is, the weakness that we spotted in our conversation, and practice a different approach. So we use the, our curriculum, not, the curriculum of situations not only tells us what we've got to work on, but it tells us where to go to practice. So if, if I'm working on trying to control my reactivity to a particular peer, I had several, <laughs> um, my question as coach would be, do you have a meeting coming up? Look at your calendar. So I have them get their calendar up and say, when are you going to have an opportunity to practice this new way of thinking or this new way of acting mm -hmm. within the curriculum of the situations that you're facing? I tell some of my leaders that situations are sacred. Those are the key. That's where you're really going to learn about how to get better.
So, Doug, let me ask you, you, so you talk about, you know, in minute 45, I will look for what's coming up. We're getting to some process things, which is tease up sort of the next question, because ah, uh, yeah. In doing my research, you know, there again, classic, very popular coaching model is called a uh, four-step model called grow. The G is goals, then there's resources, options, and then will or the way forward. And it's funny, as I speak to a lot of people who have been coached, who have executive coaches, it's almost split. About half of the people I know, they've gotten a lot out of the experience. They've enjoyed having a coach. But just as often, I will hear... Mm -hmm. Uh, the feedback saying it, it drives me crazy. All they do is ask me questions. I, you know, I just want the answer. I just want to get better. And as, <laughs> as I've talked to many executive coaches who follow the grow model, they're not saying, yeah. Hey, what's keeping you up at night? What's bothering you? It's sort of like set your goal. And I'm supposed to you know, say, uh, I want to be a better presenter. And then they'll make sure it's speci yeah. specific. By when do you want to become a better presenter? What will that look like? What will that, you know, all these things. Right. When I get to my options, yeah, there's the, uh, and, and I do use this question myself with some, in just conversation of, the, you know, um, and what else? You know, you just keep getting them to dig deeper on their options. But these coaches tell me, you know, it's it's all about just, questioning everything comes from this question and it's guiding you're at, you're suggesting something different you're saying look we're not we're not identifying strengths and coaching to their strengths we're not saying hey pick a goal any goal and i'll ask you a bunch of questions to help you come up with a plan you're saying right where are you going to derail or what's troubling you or where are you where are you getting some feedback that we can explore together. So tell me, you know, what are your thoughts on this grow model and what's, what's more your traditional process? There are so many models out there that are, that are useful. And I certainly, I certainly think goals, resources, options, and will or way forward. By the way, the one part of that I like the best is the last one, yes. will or way forward. <laughs> um, so, you know, I like, I like this model one, one, um, just thinking back on your work, you know, and how you emphasize if you leave out people, you know, you say it's a process of leadership is a process of social influence and others are absolutely key in that. Um, you know, I look at goals, resources, options, and will forward, way forward, and I see a fairly mechanical kind of I, I don't and I don't want to be critical because I'm sure it's it's very useful. But not all not all uh, models and definitions of of leadership are equal. There's a lot of good ones, but some lack. They lack the connection to the actual problem. Mm, yes, yeah, and that can be that can actually be helpful. You could think of the grow model, for example, as four coat hooks in a closet. You know, and as I'm thinking about as I'm as I'm thinking about my situation as a as a leader with my coach. Maybe first I first I can see, well, what 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 are my goals? Right. I'll hang them on the first one. So it reminds me that I need goals. It I need to be reminded that there are resources. So that's code num code hook number two. Number three and and so on. So you go to options and will or way forward. Right. So it's a it's an interp it's a way of organizing your thinking about um, the problem that you're in. I have a little different way of organizing that. And um, I've called it the lead where you stand method and lead where you stand. And once again, Kevin, I know you've written about this, so I'm, I'm, I'm piggybacking on you. 
But lead where you stand tells us that leadership is not about title. Leadership is not about power. Leadership is not about experience or age. I think of leadership in general, just defining it very broadly, a leader will provide a positive presence in the interest of progress Mm -hmm. at work, at home, and in their community. Love it. So I'm not thinking about job titles, certainly. Right. Maybe, I'm a, maybe I'm an 18-year-old whose mom and dad who have just divorced. Mm-hmm. Could I be a leader in this situation when mom and dad are at war with each other? That's the kind of situation that really calls to a person because they want to be better in situations with people they care about. Um, so lead where you stand is about – it's a process of social influence wherever you find yourself, whatever organization, whether it's family – a community organization, or even at work, of course at work. But the way that I've, the way that I, after my years at Microsoft, actually in my early years at Microsoft, I discovered some things that called me to a, uh, said, you've got to have some, you've got to have a different way of approaching this problem. One of the, one of the things that characterized our company early on was the intensity Mm. and uh, passion and drive. Uh, I just read an interview with uh, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett the other day, and Bill said, I was a zealot. I didn't believe in vacations. I didn't believe in weekends. I knew every employee's car license number so I could tell who was still at the office and who was gone. That's the environment that I went into. I loved Microsoft. I'm a, I'm a psychologist, yeah. you know, I'm not, not a technologist, but I loved those people. You know, they were so smart. They were so driven and they were determined to make a difference in the world. Um, and clearly those folks were able to, were able to do that. But in, with that intensity came a level of emotional reactivity and anxiety um, and uncertainty that really triggered um, that, that triggered people's uh, sort of instincts towards self-promotion mm. and self-protection. And so as a result, my first, when I first looked at this situation, I thought, well, how, you know, maybe we could develop like uh, the big, the other big companies, IBM and so forth. Maybe we could just develop this giant training curriculum. And I said, no, how are we going to teach people to deal with the emotional pressure that they're under every day to perform, to be the smartest, to have good ideas, to finish things, get results, and so on. So my first, the first, the first step in the lead where you stand method that that uh, I created, and we taught to, oh, probably ten thousand managers mm. across the world at Microsoft. The first, the first thing you have to do as a leader. These are my four, my four. Yeah, foot right. Okay. Summon your composure. In any situation in which you find yourself, you have to be able to call upon your own emotional equanimity. It's like in the airplane, you know, when they tell you to put on your own mask, oxygen mask first before you start trying to help the baby or the guy next to you. Right. Summon your composure, calm down, and there's a variety of ways in which we do that, but a lot of folks, when they think about composure, think about um, calming the body down. The way I approach it is you can calm your mind down if you can step out of your own little egocentric space and expand your view of what's actually going on. It's a way of stepping back intellectually and kind of like um, let's say that you are at the right on the field 
with our Seahawks <laughs> or our Eagles. Right, right. Thank you. <laughs> is standing there right with Pete, Carol, in, in, right. and being so engaged and so involved that you really can't see the bigger picture. Go to the press box. Mm. Get a different seat and you get a different view because that broader perspective will invariably calm you down. Einstein used to say, um, ask a good question. And I would add to that, ask a good, honest question, not a rhetorical question where you think you already know the answer. Right. But that allows you to step back. So the first step in, the me- step in that method is summon your composure. The second one is we need to know what we are going to stand on. So lead where you stand. Uh, You've you got to know what you're going to stand on, which I think of as your convictions. So the first C word is summon your composure. The second one is surface your convictions. Dig them out. Remember what you're here for and who you want to be as a leader. What kind of a leader do you want to be? It's so easy to lose track of that when you're in a, in a four o'clock meeting and you're tired and fatigued and you get into a debate about some kind of argument. Yeah, yeah. Surface your convictions, remembering your convictions. The third one is to strengthen your connections. I studied family systems theory for eight years. Continue to do it. And my mentor there was a man named Murray Bowen. And Murray Bowen was the pioneer, and he actually was the first one to use the word family therapy. And Bowen used to say, fix the relationships, and almost all the other problems will go away. I have a young client, a young coaching client who I've worked with now for 10 years. And um, as I look back across, he's moved from a lab manager all the way up to a general manager now. And one of the things that I see that has made such a difference to him is now he goes into every situation thinking about the relationship system. Who do I have a relationship with? Who I do not? Who am I and how am I connected? And who does this person have a relationship to? And how do I interact with that? So strengthening your connections is the third step. Summon your composure, surface your convictions, strengthen your connections. And then the fourth one is call on your courage. That's in the grow model, isn't it? The will or way forward. But the unique thing about, I think I have learned about at Microsoft and through the course of my career, is that courage is not a one-time thing. Courage is not an impulse. It's not a flyby. It's not a one-time thing. It's not a quick fix. It's committing yourself to a process of courageous steps Hmm. and persevering with your mind open. This is the tricky part. You've got to keep your mind open so that your your response to the situation as you're beginning to pull you move into action is one where you can adjust and adapt as opposed to just bang through. So those are the four. Let me ask you some questions. This is great stuff. So now I'm thinking about like, let's start with composure. As I think about many leaders I've worked with, many managers I've worked with, you know, I've reported to some, some leaders who were, I mean, they had like ice water in their veins. I mean, eh, can't make payroll in three days. <laughs> this merger is blowing up, whatever. Like you couldn't tell if they were having a good day or a bad day. I mean, it was just even keel. I've known others who were screaming red in the face, who would break down in tears, who would, I mean, very emotional. And <laughs> part of me thinks, okay, this is just personality, negative emotion or neuroticism on the the old five-factor personality scale. Some people are going to be more reactive to stress than others. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. But then I will say that when I think about how I was as a boss in my 20s versus how I am at the ripe old age of 50, I have learned and I have changed over the years where I'm less reactive, more composed. I used to be very um, – I didn't realize it was about self-preservation at the time, but I was very – reacting to what was going on to, to me. Now it's almost like I see a game mm-hmm. or a puzzle. Uh, you know, it's, it's that higher than the press box. I'm mean, like in the blimp. Yeah. So how much is personality and how much can we change and, and learn to, you know, regather our composure, especially during these stressful times? Yeah. Let's start with the idea of personality or temperament. You know, I mean, we know that uh, a child, that developmental psychologists can actually discern differences between children um, in the hospital when they're immediately, as soon as they're born, wow. in terms of their sort of emotion, emotional reactivity. So their temperament, your temperament does set you up in a way to be more or less um more or less reactive. The second thing that affects that level of reactivity that you are dealing with in yourself is the level of sort of emotional response, reactivity, to use that, um, in your family of origin. So that's it's re- if your family is, is constantly dealing with drama, right. you feel like you're more alive when there's more drama. Right. And then there are other folks. I, boy, I think about um, a woman named Patty Stonecipher, who was one of our great, great leaders. She's the president now of Martha's Table down in Washington, D.C., feeding. She was CEO of the Gates Foundation for a while. She's just amazing. She grew up in a family of lawyers, <laughs> and they would sit at the dinner table and debate. And she could do that under the under incredible, um, harsh sort of interrogation is one of the reasons she did really well at Microsoft because uh, Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer were masters at knocking you off your feet a little bit to make sure that your ideas were sound. Mm. That said, so there are differences. There are absolutely differences in people's sort of uh, the level of uh, emotion they experience uh, day to day and how much they actually need to feel that tension and friction, mm-hmm. to feel like, you know, this is normal for me. Mm-hmm. This is okay. But, but my experience has been that for the level that most of us are comfortable with, the level that level of emotional reaction that gets sparked in organizations um, around our own defensiveness, defending our own ego, you know, and um, – Thinking, I got to make a mark here. I got to be the one to get ahead. I got to get ahead. It's a, it's a competition. Those reactions, that drama, it can be such a tremendous time and energy waster in organizations. Right. But you, you painted the picture too of of two leaders. You know, <laughs> one who's very calm, the, the guy in the blimp up here, uh, ice in his veins or her veins. Right. And the the screamer. Right. I've worked with I've both worked with screamers and with those who seem to have ice in their veins. And the the question comes back to who is this person that's doing the screaming or this very very calm you know detached analytical approach. Um, a a fellow at Microsoft named Dave Thompson who ran development said he used to say this um, this great things. He says said I scream I scream, I yell sometime, but as long as people know that you're about results and not about trying to get ahead yourself, 
you can get away with that. I think it's dangerous. I would have to have a little debate with my friend Dave because once you light up that emotion, actually the brain, the way the brain works, you light up the emotion and your ability to step out of that becomes much more difficult. Mm. And what happens is that the emotions begin to, to uh, they take your big brain hostage and you start inventing reasons, really rational. And when you, you know, you deal with people who have IQs of 180 to 200, they yeah. can come up with some really good oh, reasons yeah. for doing some really bad things. Right. So that's the first half. The first half is there are individual differences that we come to this with. But I do believe that leaders have a responsibility to be steady. Mm-hmm. They have to steady things for other people. Otherwise, the whole foundation on which we're working begins to shake and people get uncertain. When they get uncertain, they get anxious. When they get anxious, they get emotion, more emotionally reactive and their big brain starts serving their emotions. Mm. The second half of it, though, is can we learn? Can we do better around composure? And the answer is absolutely. But we have to do it in a way that most of us are not particularly comfortable with. You, you may remember, I don't know, you took piano as a kid, but practicing for that 30 minutes a day was a real pain, you know, because it kept me from getting outside and playing, playing baseball or whatever. We know that to get better at something as complicated as composure takes practice. That ability comes to us as we practice in an incremental and iterative way. It's like we have to learn, we have to practice and get feedback over and over and over again. And, you know, both organizations and people often lack the patience to work in that way. Stepping back, there is a great literature now on how elite performers develop their expertise. And this is the way they do it. They do it through what's called deliberate practice. Mm -hmm. You don't have an experience and learn from it automatically. You know, we have to reflect on it. We have to often have help in understanding it, which is where a coach can come in, you know, or a mentor. And we've got to get out and try again, over and over and over again. Regularity of practices is essential. So if I were working with you on your composure, we'd be looking for a meeting this week, or maybe tomorrow, right. where you've locked up, perhaps, with a peer. Right. Um, or you know that you're going to get exercised about this particular policy issue and you're going to have you're going to get into an argument about it and you're going to probably get hot. What am I going to do when I feel that coming? Right. When I know that that's a situation where I'm likely to go off emotionally, how am I going to hold my equanimity and my composure? What am I going to think differently? How am I going to recognize the feeling? And what will I do differently in that situation? And I'll just try it. I may not be perfectly successful, but if we're building in an incremental and iterative way, I know I'm going to have another chance. But let's get started. Let's do it tomorrow. I love that. Yeah, to think ahead to what will the triggering situation be, and let's use that as practice. Let's talk it through. Let's develop those strategies, and then we're going to practice it when the time comes. Doug, I uh, with your your talk about a couple times now about practicing piano and and uh, that example it reminds me of my friend Robert who told me. Uh, there's only two times he ever made his mom cry, and, and the first was when he told her as a kid that he wanted to quit piano, and the second time was when he told her as an adult he was going to become a professional pianist. <laughs> so she cried both times. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. That's a good one. So I, I've got um, 
one sort of just question, uh, uh, riffing off of what we've said, you know, I was thinking about your experience at Microsoft and, and your model and about composure. And I have run into people uh, when I talk about wholehearted leadership or compassionate leadership or servant leadership. And they say, you know, who do we admire as the business leaders, you know, re of recent time, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Balmer, if you want to throw another Microsoft person in. Yep. Even more recently, as, as we're hearing stories about Bezos at, at, at Amazon, Musk even isn't necessarily the, the most warm and fuzzy person. And they'll say, all oh, those guys were jerks. You know, they were mean to people. They were the screamers. They were totally unreasonable. All this kind of stuff worked out well for them. Why do I need to be composed? Why do I need to think about, you know, other people's feelings? I'm curious that, you know, there's a part of me that thinks, well, on my entrepreneurial days, I will say how you started, which is it's about results and relationships, but results do have to come first. So if you're getting those results, it can mask being bad at relationships. Mm -hmm. Other times I think maybe they could have been even greater or succeeded faster if they had balanced with the relationship stuff, if they had been more composed uh, in their approach. You know, how would you argue uh, or what would you say to people who look at those role models and don't really see composure or the warm and fuzzy side? You know, I, it's so funny. I, I, I've been asked this question so many times because I did work uh, with and for Bill. One of the things that, and I know in uh, Walter Isaacson's book on Steve Jobs, for example, the, the impact of Steve's personality and expression of that personality on people, uh, Isaacson describes that pretty well. I can describe it personally mm. because of the firsthand, the, the times when I have had Bill Gates say to me, as he said, Although in the beginning, I didn't know this. That is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And when you know you've got the guy who is building this marvelous company, my respect for his intelligence is he's so far beyond anything that I can think of. Um, he was he was just intellectually so sharp. And his intention was always to look always to to get the best idea out of his people. But to get the best idea I would have to say that Bill was harsh, bordering on brutal. Right. Here's how I reacted the first couple times that I was on the receiving end of that. I shut down. Right, right. I was looking for an escape hatch. And part of my challenge was I'd come out of a come out of an academic environment where you have you have different kinds of arguments. Right, right. But they don't usually end up in people yelling at each other. And uh, the kind of passion where the stakes are immediate, you know. Right. But I shut down, Kevin. In the back of my mind, I, I knew my arguments for what it was I was proposing to do. But he was so quick and undermined them. And so my, my self-defense just rose right to the fore. To the extent uh, that's, that's one thing. The reaction to, of smart, capable people to your um, outbursts right. is not good. Usually they're going to get fearful, which means they're going to they're going to they're going to shrink mm -hmm. back into themselves a bit. Their perspective is not going to be anywhere near as broad as yours. Um, the best thing you can do at that point is just tell them, just do it. Don't think about it. Just do it. That's a terrible thing to do. To people, yeah, sure. I think. Sure. So there's this immediate effect of this um, this behavior 
on the person that you're trying to you're trying to work with and motivate, which is negative. And he just didn't have the patience at that point in time, you know, to to sort of lean in gently and and tease out what it was that you uh, you were thinking about. Yeah. I know from watching him over the years now, over the years since I was there, he's learned a lot. He he wasn't a dad when I uh, <laughs> when I was there, and he also has an amazing spouse. Melinda yeah. Gates was, I think, perhaps one of our absolute best managers at Microsoft. Wow, she was great. Yeah. And people have said similar things about Steve Jobs. Like he mellowed over time. When he came back to Apple, he was a different leader yeah. than early. And maybe some of the yeah. more horrific stories we hear out of Silicon Valley these days, a lot of these um, entrepreneurial founders are 20-something years old, never managed anybody before, and are making mistakes. And maybe they'll mellow you know, in the decades ahead as well. Yeah. And you use the word mellow. I try to think really carefully about how does our experience – affect our disposition, you know, the, mm. the sort of what we bring to a situation. And, you know, certainly we can, we mellow with experience, but the research is really, really clear. We don't necessarily get better just by having experiences. Experiences have to be digested. An example would be um, the research that shows that surgeons right out of their residency, they get better for the first two years and then they plateau, huh. and then they begin to drop off. You know, so for example, my mother had uh, back surgery, and they were they had a couple of uh, they got a couple of opinions, and I tried to prompt her with questions. I the one question I wanted her to ask her doctor, the, the potential surgeon, was, um, now I know you do eight of these a day, and you've been doing them for twenty years, but how do you go about making sure that you're learning from each one? <laughs> because we know, we know the research. The research says that most surgeons don't get better. They think they're better, right? but they're not getting better because they're not reflecting and digesting and capturing the lessons of that experience. So mellowing may happen, but you may be just mellowing and not really getting better. Yeah, that makes sense. Doug, we could, uh, I call myself a leadership geek, so don't take it the wrong way. I just, I can see another leadership geek. We geek out on, uh, on leadership. Um, we could go on and on, and I'm going to have to have you back so that we can do more uh, follow-up things. But for now, tell our listeners, uh, how can they find out more about you and, and your work? We have, a, uh, we have a website, OceansideInstitute.org. They can visit us there, and there is uh, there's contact information there. So, and I I welcome letters of inquiry from people. Um, you know, I, I just I love situations. You know, I don't I, I'm not particularly interested when somebody tells me, hey, how do I how am I going to develop my composure? <laughs> I'm more interested when they when they say I've got a peer who just uh, soundproofed his office over the weekend on his own dime so that he could yell at his people in the office without anybody hearing. That's a real situation. That was a real situation. Okay? And that's the kind of stuff I like to deal with. Doug, you said you weren't going to report my uh, my case to you uh, on the air. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid I violated that agreement. <laughs> That's crazy. People are actually, uh, you know, let me just cover up that behavior. I just need more soundproofing. I don't need to, be, to change. <laughs> yeah, can you imagine? But I love, you know, I just love hearing about those situations. So if people are out there, your listeners, and, and you know, and they want to inquire, 
please just go to the website. I'm really working on this model right now, and situations that that um, that people that come to the website have always strengthen my thinking about the model. So I would welcome their inquiries. I think that's great. It's great, uh, very generous offer as well. We'll make sure we put uh, the link in the article and and show notes everywhere that uh, that this goes. Doug, thanks again for coming on to the Lead X Show. Oh, thank you, Kevin. It's been a delight. LeadX Nation, if you like this podcast, I hope you leave a rating or a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen. I also hope you'll go to leadx.org, O-R-G, sign up for the three-day free trial of the LeadX Academy. It's the most affordable and effective online learning, downloadable tools, webinar archive, and executive book summaries for managers, leaders, and those who want to get ahead. It's the best stuff you'll ever see. Remember, leadership is influence you are always leading. How will you lead today?